Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're recording today from the National Congress of American Indians. It's 2018, and we're in Denver, Colorado. We're at an exciting venue. People from all over Indian country are here. Some amazing people making a huge difference throughout the nation. We've got one of those individuals sitting right across from me, Patrick Anderson, the CEO of something that's sometimes simply referred to as Rural Cap. Patrick, it's great to have you with us. It's wonderful to be here. A lot of folks know about you and about your organization, but many don't. We have people listening from, actually, I'll be honest with you, there's people who have no native roots that listen to this show, and when I have guests on there, even though they may be well-known in Indian country, they say, who is Patrick Anderson? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, sure. Um, I'm actually a licensed attorney in Alaska this Friday will be my 40th year, the end of my 40th year as an attorney. Wow. And I've practiced law for a good part of that, but in 2002, a number of events converged to persuade me that perhaps my value was greater working in Indian country, uh, in the nonprofit world specifically. I was struggling with the reports of such high incidences of various dysfunctions in Indian country, alcoholism, suicide, uh, domestic violence, just a whole host of problems and issues. So uh, I left law practice in that year, and within a few months I was hired as the executive director of what we call a tribally compacted healthcare and Bureau of Indian Affairs system. So I ran a real health care system and a variety of associated programs, including a lot of grant-funded programs. It's a small organization, seven tribes, but it acquainted me with the depth of issues that exist in Indian country, but also very personalized it because uh, in, in a small tribal community of less than 2,000 people, you get to know people fairly well. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So. I, I segued out of law practice. Prior to that, um, I had been raised in Alaska, uh, in Village, Alaska, but then moved to the Seattle area when I was nine years old. Okay. I graduated from high school in Seattle and then had the good fortune to have a high school counselor who believed in me, and I ended up going to Princeton University as an undergrad and Tremendous. then to the University of Michigan Law School. Mm-hmm. And so at age 24, I graduated with my uh, JD and uh, went up to Alaska, took the bar exam on October 26th, 40 years ago. Wow. Uh, Friday, I will have been an attorney for 40 years. Well, congratulations. That is an amazing story. And I, I think a lot of people, as they listen throughout Indian country, because you yourself have, have deep roots in Indian country, right? Uh, absolutely. I was uh, born in a Bureau of Indian Affairs hospital at Mount Edgecombe, Alaska. I, uh, Remember going to the Alaska Native Medical Center when I was about five or six, had my tonsils out, my eyes checked, uh, the mean nurse that wouldn't let me get out of bed. I don't remember her visually, but I sure remember she didn't want me to be out and running around. Uh-huh. Okay. And so you have that background, and a lot of people would say, well, if you went to an Ivy League school like Princeton, 
you give some credit to the high school counselor, but you were probably from a family of means, and, and everyone just expected you to go to an Ivy League school, perhaps. Absolutely not. Um, I was living in a housing project in Seattle. We were not a part of the generational poverty. We were situational. My grandfather was actually uh, middle class. He, he lived uh, in the small native community of Yakutat. Uh, he and my grandmother divorced. He married second time, and the family grew up in uh, a middle-class environment. My mother and father, before they divorced, were both working, living in a nice home. So, uh, you know, we were we were functionally middle-class, but when I was about seven, eight years old, six, seven, eight years old, um, we, we descended into situational poverty, which meant that um, we found ourselves without the means to survive. We ended up uh, moving to Seattle with a stepfather who my mother divorced shortly after we got down there. So we were left in an environment where we really had no opportunities. My mother dropped out of high school to marry my father. When I was uh, 10 years old, the state of Washington took uh, myself and my four sisters away from her. Uh, So I spent uh, that Christmas, 1963, in the Seattle Youth Detention Center. Hmm. There weren't foster homes enough to take anyone but my baby sister, who was only about two. Uh So certainly not from a well-off family. Uh, We did not have the means to send me to college. Uh, My mother couldn't have contributed a penny. She was struggling to to raise the five of us as a a single mother most of the time, occasionally uh, uh, live in father substitute, but uh, not very frequently. One of the challenges, it doesn't matter whether it's in Indian country or anywhere in the United States or anywhere in the world, many times people look at their environment, their situation, and they feel like that determines what their future is going to be. And in fact, there's a lot of research in, in the medical circles, and I know you're well aware of this, Patrick, where they look at some of these negative things, labeled negative or adverse childhood experiences, and they say, Basically, they're setting you up for problems down the road. For folks who aren't familiar with that whole line, I I know it's been a special interest of yours. Give us a little glimpse into what that whole research base is looking at. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Vincent Felitti, who I've had the good fortune to be acquainted with for about the last eight or nine years, is a Johns Hopkins-educated physician who was running a Kaiser Permanente clinic of about half a million patients in San Diego, and his curiosity about why individuals who were losing up to 300 pounds in one year on their program would suddenly regain weight. Hmm. He would talk about that when he was speaking in public, and from what I heard of his story, he was in an audience where Dr. Robert Anda from the Centers for Disease Control was listening, and They got together, collaborated, and said um, they needed to have some data. So they initiated a research study uh, sponsored by the CDC and involved patients from Dr. Felitti's clinic. Uh, They ultimately got a little over 17,300 mostly white, mostly middle class, mostly middle-aged patients. They interviewed them. They had their medical records, and as they came up with data, what astounded them is that when they looked at initially eight events that their discussions with patients had indicated were 
common, uh, and they discussed those with these 17,300 patients. They, they subsequently added two more questions. Uh, what they discovered is that there was correlation between a lot of negative uh, health outcomes and the number of these experiences that you had as a child, which they defined between birth and age 18. So when we talk about these eight or ten factors, can you give us some idea of what they were? Oh, absolutely. I grew up with six of them, maybe seven. So if you have a parent who is an alcoholic, uh, if you have uh, an absent biological parent, if you have a parent who has been in prison, uh, if you have a parent who is depressed or has a mental illness, if you have a witnessed domestic violence in the household, if you've been a victim of contact sexual abuse, if you've been physically abused yourself, emotionally abused, or physically neglected or emotionally neglected, uh, those are the items that they studied. The causation, Dr. Felitti said, was just incredible. Um, I think the p-value was... Um, well within the this is the cause range. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you look at causation, again, he said it was off the charts. They really, uh, the people he spoke to in science said they'd not seen that kind of correlation. So when we're speaking, you know, for those of you tuning in, you know, you're listening to two professionals, a physician and a, and a lawyer speaking, and we're talking about research. These p-values are probability values. So when we do research, you look at the probability of something happening by chance. And what Patrick is saying is when you look at these p-values that are really, really small, you're basically saying there's no way this could just be by chance. This has to be a real cause, right? Isn't that bottom line? Absolutely. And it was also a multivariate analysis, meaning that they didn't just look for one outcome. They were finding multiple outcomes. Uh, so when, when they write about the research, they talked about the population attributable risk, which basically is the percentage of the population to whom this particular cause results in this particular outcome. Uh, when I read that, it blew me away. I slapped my head kind of like I could have had a V8. Um, I've been trained in management science, and not traditional management science, but a concept called lean healthcare. Hmm. Lean healthcare uh, was influenced very heavily by Dr. W. Edwards Deming. Deming teaches a PDCA cycle, it's often called the Deming cycle, but it's plan, do, check, uh, and then action, either adjust or act on your findings. Um, and it's hard to explain why uh, it, it struck me, other than I had been trained in the lean healthcare concepts of a root cause analysis or the five whys. You just keep asking why. You're not satisfied with your first answer. Uh -huh. You keep asking until you can't answer your questions anymore. And what I realized is that the root cause analysis for many of the things that I've experienced and my sisters and others have experienced are adverse childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. And so that sent me on a lengthy study uh, that it uh, led me to invite Dr. Felitti uh, also to invite three other individuals who were well-learned in either historical trauma, uh, ACEs, um, street trauma, or childhood trauma to a consultation that I had with the seven tribes in the region I was administering at the time. Uh, and it, it just continued to resonate with me that I could find evidence of adverse childhood experiences in people who were adversely 
uh, impacted by health issues, adversely mm-hmm. impacted by behavioral issues. Uh, but I could also find that adverse childhood experiences drove what we would see as positive results. Hmm. And so I ended up uh, out of the Seattle Public Schools as a member of their torch society. I played multiple sports. I sang in multiple organizations. Uh-huh. Uh, and I kept wondering why I would do that. What I realized is that when you have a traumatized uh, brain that you are looking for approvals. Hmm. Uh, it's difficult uh, for me to get the concept over, but what happens when you are impacted by adverse childhood experiences is that you build an enhanced fear response. That enhanced fear response is designed to protect you. If you are a child raised in these environments, uh, this fear is most often transient, uh, you're going to become an adult and there's opportunity here. If you can climb out of it, then the fear all of a sudden is not ever present except in these adverse childhood experiences. So you might feel anxiety, you might uh, feel the remnants of fear, uh, you have increased uh, toxic stress, mm-hmm. and that is a uh, neurobiological response uh, your when when you have an excitation of your amygdala, uh, people don't understand why they feel the way that they feel. Mm-hmm. But those of us who are traumatized feel that constantly. And when you aren't allowed to dissipate the chemicals uh, that you respond to when you are fearful, the adrenaline, epinephrine, uh, just a whole cascade of chemicals that are preparing you to fight or to run, um, you basically freeze, and when you freeze, those same chemicals start to tear at your body. Mm. So what Dr. Felitti found is that with people who are still traumatized, they experience negative results. Wow, this is amazing stuff. And I know it's coming kind of fast and, uh, and furious here because, uh, Patrick, you're an expert in this, but you've got an amazing personal story. I'm hoping you can stay by for our next segment. Is that going to work with your schedule here? That will work just fine. So if you're uh, wanting to connect all the dots, we're talking about how adverse childhood experiences can harm you. We'll talk more about the details, some of the things it's associated with. But we're also talking with someone who experienced lots of these adverse childhood experiences and is making a huge positive difference in Indian country. How can that be your story? You may be listening today. You're dealing with depression. You're dealing with challenges. And a lot of it has to do with things that have happened in your past. It's not a hopeless situation. We've got a lot of hope coming up in today's show. Don't go away. We've got more to come. I'm Dr. DeRose. You're listening to American Indian Living. We've got a lot more coming right up after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter. Emergency medical unit received. 
respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're here at the National Congress of American Indians 2018 in Denver, Colorado. Across from me, Patrick Anderson. He's a lawyer. He's the chief executive officer with the Rural Alaska Community Action Program, Incorporated. We're going to talk more about that in a bit, but right now, you've really got our interest. We're talking about these adverse childhood experiences. And you were sharing your own story, Patrick, if you will, as to how you learned about this research and you started connecting the dots. We've spoken in generalities, but for someone listening in today, if they've got certain health issues or mental health issues, what kind of things have they found are connected with these tough events in childhood? Oh, where do you start? <laughs> there, There is a judge wrote a book. Um, don't recall her name right now. But I listened to Dr. Felitti, the co-principal investigator of the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, discuss her. Incredibly successful woman. Uh, she had been sexually abused by her father's drinking buddies. He would bring oh. her to the place where they drank, and he would trade her off for alcohol or for money. No way. Um, she over. He, he apparently left her out in a desert for a, an overnight one time. He just did cruel things to her. Wow. She overcame that, graduated from high school. She overcame that and graduated from college and then law school. Mm. Uh, she ended her career uh, as a civil rights judge in the federal system. Uh, her health issues today are that she is blind. She has had three different kinds of cancers. And as a physician, you know that, yes, recurrence of cancer is common, but to have three different kinds. And she had two different autoimmune diseases. Wow. Uh, the linkages between childhood traumatic stress Toxic stress, as the American Academy of Pediatrics call it, and later health issues, 
is, again, amazing causation. When you look at the people who have variations of the 10 stressors, um, and it goes up to 10, uh, you will find that things like uh, initial sexual experience, uh, 15 and under, uh, there is a correlation between the number of adverse experiences that you have in your first sexual experience. As a physician, you know that that leads to teen pregnancies. Mm -hmm. It also leads to high rates of STDs. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of issues like that that occur, higher rates of smoking, higher rates of drug use. If you have six of the adverse childhood experiences, as I grew up with, you are 4,200% more likely to be an IV drug user than someone who has zero. Wow. All right out of the study. So if you're an IV drug user, that means you're probably using opioids. Hence the epidemic. The epidemic is rampant in Indian country. So why are we not making the connection between adverse childhood experiences and many of these negative behaviors? Um, I make that connection, and Mm -hmm. I try to let people know that we really have to find a way to help people deal with something that is hidden from them, and that is a fear response. We don't pay attention to it. We just react to it. This is so fascinating, and I think part of the reason for having this topic on this show is because you yourself, Patrick, realize, and you've already started to give us a window on this, that although these Sometimes they call them ACEs, A-C-E for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Although we're talking about connections with bad things, you started to give us a little window as to how this doesn't necessarily doom us to a terrible life and terrible health outcomes and, and failure, even though it may stack the deck in that direction. Am I crystallizing it uh, okay? You are. I listen to people's Uh, discussions about resilience. Uh, Dr. Kenneth Ginsberg has done work with NCAI on youth. What they try and do is to promote resilience, and I haven't been able to get a good definition of what resilience is. What I've discovered is that the fear response is not well understood. Yes, we talk about fight, flight, or freeze, but we don't understand it. Uh, Joseph Ledoux, a professor at New York University, has written extensively and and researched in this field since about 1988-89. The fear response involves the amygdala, uh, not well, incredibly well understood yet, uh, but it also involves the reactive functions that are attached to the amygdala. Um, If you have a fear signal come in, uh, you end up with the amygdala uh, mediating that, sending it to the hypothalamus, and all of a sudden you've got a... Uh, HPA access excitation. So we're to, to kind of put this all in plain English, when we speak of the amygdala, we're speaking of a brain region. And sometimes we say it's part of what we call the limbic system or the emotional brain, right? Yes. And then this HPA, we're speaking about the hypothalamic pituitary axis. So all these big words, we're just talking about connections between the brain, the hormonal system, and this is a huge science. I mean, there's whole medical journals that write about this, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're trying to, to we're we're trying to crystallize this into some take-home points, and and I find this uh, this absolutely fascinating, Patrick. And we're trying to make it practical for our listeners, and I think it already is because they've heard, if they've been with us from the beginning of the hour, that you are someone who had a majority of those adverse childhood experiences, and yet had a successful career as a student, as a law student, 
you become a lawyer, now you're giving back in huge ways in Indian country. So people are saying, well, this can't doom you. I mean, he's talking with someone right now who had a lot of these bad things happen in his life. But the question is, like you're bringing it to us, this fear response. So let me see if I'm, if I'm hearing it right. So someone who has had more of these adverse childhood experiences, you may be, let's bring it back to, uh, to Ann Arbor, to uh, University of Michigan in law school. A test is coming up. There's, I don't know how many students in the class, 150? What was it? I'm just guessing. We had about 300 in our entering class. Okay. So each section would have, you know, between 10 and 100, 120 people. Okay. So you're in one of those classes with 120 students, a lecture class, and you've got a test coming up. All of you, we would say, have maybe the same stressor. They're preparing for that test. But people are going to have a different response. Am I hearing you right that based on my adverse childhood experiences, the same event may cause me to respond in a different way? Is, is this part of it? It is. So help me help me see that a little bit more clearly. What would be different about how someone with more adverse childhood experiences might deal with that test or that job stress or, you know, they're laying people off in the workplace or the casino revenue is down and there's going to be less uh, benefits for tribal members? Help me see that. One of the findings that Dr. Felitti found is that if you were getting up around five, six, seven adverse childhood experiences, uh, you might be more promiscuous. And I thought hmm. about that. Um, when I grew up, there was a lot of serial monogamy. And the connection that I made is that when you have the interest of someone that you're interested in, it gives you certain chemicals in your brain that make you feel good. Hmm. Now, when Dr. Felitti was talking about smoking, he said within six or seven seconds of taking that puff, the chemicals in smoking in your brain give you some relief. So I said, well, why wouldn't chemicals that come from a positive event give you that relief? Ah. And then he said something that was very wise and illuminated it for me. He said, the smoking only lasts for a very short period of time. You need to repeat it. So I thought, okay, the praise or the attention only lasts for a short period of time, uh. so you need to repeat it. So you go on a cycle, and that's what I did, of seeking out circumstances where you would get praise for what you were doing. And it doesn't really have to be at a very high level. I was uh -huh. not a good athlete. I was a good singer. Uh -huh. But I think it was more because I was uh, in the first tenor range. There weren't many people <laughs> singing in that range. Okay. So I got accepted to all kinds of things, the uh -huh. Princeton Choir, the Seattle All-City Choir. And what I realized is that I was going and chasing the brain chemicals in that way, all coming from understanding that in relationships, you really get a huge dose of brain chemicals when someone from the opposite sex or if you're uh, interested in the same sex, if they pay attention to you. Hmm. But it doesn't last very long, so you have to go after it. But on the other side of the coin, you also have this high fight response. Mm -hmm. And so... You may be with someone for a short period of time, but if you allow your fight response to take over, you're going to end that relationship pretty quick. Or if you get criticism, you're not going to be happy with that relationship. You're going to move on. Huh. I begin to realize that these chemicals are available during positive events, and that might be actually what people are attributing resilience to. We just have a menu of choices that we can make. Some are available to other people. Uh, but they find a different source. For example, as an athlete, I couldn't smoke. I did not want to smoke mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it would reduce my uh, 
efforts as an athlete, and I wouldn't get the same level of praise. Wow. Uh, but alcohol was not the same thing. And while I didn't uh, ever get to the addicted point, uh, I did get to the point where I could not remember what happened the night after. It doesn't mm-hmm. take very long when you don't drink very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so alcohol is one of those things that make you feel better. It just actually loosens inhibitions, makes you forget the problems. And before you know it, you're more sociable and feeling good and making connections. So there are a whole bunch of brain chemicals that come into effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the reasons I think I have uncles who are alcoholics who've lived into their 80s. Hmm. Um, it, uh, this menu of choices, if you plan it correctly and you avoid stress, can actually help you succeed. Wow, this is fascinating stuff. And we're going to bring it all back together to an organization that you're working with, Rural Alaska Community Action Program. Some people are saying, well, how do all these dots connect? I'm getting an encouraging picture. I'm seeing that even if we've got difficulties in the past we can have insights into how we act in the future and we can respond in different ways realizing that we've got more to come in today's edition of american indian living patrick anderson graciously staying by you do the same you'll learn a lot of practical things that will help you help your tribe help your community your family don't go away we'll be right back american indian living will continue in a moment if you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So, whether it's around your neighborhood... Or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute, since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. 
You are back for our second half of today's edition of American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose with Patrick Anderson, a lawyer and chief executive officer with Rural Alaska Community Action Program, Incorporated, based in Anchorage, Alaska. You might be wondering, okay, we've been hearing about a lawyer. We've been hearing about adverse childhood experiences. We're getting a message that you can overcome those, even though it may set you up for some challenges and problems along the way. But you say, what is all this about rural cap? How does this all come in? And why is this interesting lawyer involved with a project that I perhaps have never heard about? For those in the lower 48, Patrick, uh, rural cap is probably not a household word. Tell us a little bit about the organization that you help head up. Uh, absolutely. Um, rural cap is a community action agency. It started in 1965 as a part of the Great Society programs. It was the war on poverty. Uh, poverty uh, at the point was viewed as something easy to overcome. Uh, rural CAP has been engaged in that for a long period of time for the entire state of Alaska. We have access to serve 229 federally recognized Indian tribes and, and a whole number of um, urban communities and small rural hub communities. Uh, as a result, it has the potential to impact a lot of what goes on in Alaska. Uh, my interest in it came when I was asked if I was willing to come back to Alaska. I was the tribal health director for the Macaw tribe at Nia Bay, Washington. And early this year, I was asked if I would come back as the interim. They had hit a little rough patch uh, in the organization. Uh, I have a lot of management experience. I was a professor in the School of Business Administration, uh, uh, Public Administration, and Law Science at the University of Alaska Southeast. I've had 15 years' experience in a concept called lean healthcare. It's what drove me to the scientific approach to understanding ACEs. Mm -hmm. So I came to Rural Cap knowing that uh, it was an organization that had kind of had some difficulties in the last couple of years. I felt confident that I could put it on a good pathway, but I also saw it as an opportunity as a poverty program to perhaps focus on a segment of society similar to where I came from. Mm -hmm. uh, in Alaska, we in the, in the Alaska Native community understand that we have ACEs accumulating at a rate about twice the Alaska population and about two and a half percent or 210 or 20 percent the U.S. population. Wow. So this is a fertile place. Um, I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but if we can convince people that adverse childhood experiences are uh, one of the root causes of continuing in poverty, then maybe we can make an impact. But again, I've been at, at this for 10 years and I've not seen much of an impact Yet, no one understands the process of healing. I believe that a, the healing hypothesis that I've developed is a pathway. But what the lean healthcare uh, methodology tells you is that you don't have to have the absolute right answer. You have to have enough of the answer that you could learn from and then continuously improve after that. So that, that's why I'm at Rural Cap. In the meantime, we have multitudes of programs that are working on different siloed responses to adverse childhood experiences like suicide and suicide okay. prevention. This is really not only interesting but practical. So as I'm listening to you, Patrick, 
I'm first thinking about folks wherever they're at. Maybe they're in Alaska. Maybe they're in the lower 48. I mean, actually, there are international stations that air this show. They're hearing this messaging, and they're saying, this is amazing, because if I could make an impact on maybe two fronts, because here's how I'm conceptualizing it, and I think many of my listeners are as well. What I'm saying is, okay, we've got a group of people who've already had these adverse childhood experiences. We need to do things to help them. But the other side of the equation is the preventive side, right? Yes. We need to say, what can we do in communities to decrease the number of these ACEs that people are being exposed to, right? So it's kind of a two-pronged approach. Is, is that right? Uh, the two prongs I think of are that if you've already accumulated a number of ACEs, we need to make you aware of that and aware of what they have done to you. Uh, and number two is we need to prevent them from happening to our children. Mm-hmm. A child with zero of these adverse childhood experiences has a great start on life. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that. Uh, by its definition, means that they have two active, engaged parents and a whole bunch of good, positive things happening to them. That sets them on a trajectory for success. But given the huge population of adversely affected parents in Indian country in Alaska, you know we have a huge number of people that we have to work with to acquaint with good parenting skills, with how you overcome your own adverse childhood experiences and how you prevent your children from accumulating them. So if I, for example, were to go to your website, so uh, the Rural Alaska Community Action Program, Rural Cap, it's got a website, ruralcap.com, right? Right. So if I were to go there, would I find things that would be of value in my working with any kind of tribal health program that might be of help, or is it more a website that is specifically designed to acquaint people in Alaska with some of the services that you have available? Uh, The latter. Mm -hmm. Um, I have not been there long enough to educate my staff. In fact, I've only had my uh, leadership team in place for five months, and we're dealing with a lot of uh, issues. But uh, as a strategic thinker, my hope is is that we can begin uh, on two fronts. We do have grants. We're working in domestic violence. We're working in suicide prevention. We're not a direct health care organization, but um, we do have a number of employees that we are responsible for. We do provide health insurance for each of them. And one of the biggest problems in the uh, typical American workplace is that a very high number, 85 90% of employees, say that they're toxically stressed at work. Mm. The command and control structure that we work in has not created a lot of comfort in employees. So the first thing that we're trying to do is to create a work environment through this lean management methodology that I spoke about that builds up respect for people. Mm -hmm. So our employees are an area that we stress every day. We want them to be safe. We want them to be free of the kinds of leadership bullying that occur in other workplaces. You know, I've been told once, you get this done or it's your job. That's the Mm -hmm. kind of bullying that certain leaders rely upon in order to try and get results. So healing the workplace is real and important. Uh, The people that uh, are employed are typically not on the fringes, but we also work with a lot of people who are on the fringes. We run a supportive housing program, a 
Housing First program, which basically takes people who are still actively using alcohol and drugs and living on the street and provide them housing. Wow. So this is a great, and I hate to use the word laboratory, but because I grew up in this very emotional environment, I try and detach myself to think from a true science point of view. Uh Uh-huh. These things happen to us, Mm -hmm. and because they happen to us, we have to find ways to counter uh, what has happened to us to deal with it. And so I've spent a lot of time developing what I call a restoration to health hypothesis. I've not been able to pilot it yet. I would Uh love to have a funder like Kellogg or any of the big foundations uh, fund us to pilot it, but it's a very simple process. The first is know what happened to you. Mm-hmm. So if you have knowledge, and I learned this from Dr. Felitti, uh he writes in some of his first papers that after his 17,300-plus patients were uh, interviewed, that they went to their health care provider a third fewer times in a two-year period than they did before. They uh-huh. had fewer doctor office visits. So he talks about the impact of people understanding that they've been exposed to adverse childhood experiences needing less access to health care. And he said for 500 patients or however many millions they have in San Diego, what impact would that have on health care costs? So knowledge is something I have been trying to advocate for, but that's just the first step. If you know what happened to you, the next step is to teach you how it happens to you. And um, I've been revising my thinking with the work of Dr. Martin Seligman. Uh, Mm -hmm. Dr. Seligman is a professor emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. He came up with a concept called positive psychology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. His concept uh, is an ABCDE concept. Uh, The first one is understand what activates you. Mm -hmm. So I thought that fits in with knowledge. If you know that you were a victim of adverse childhood experiences and you have toxic stress then let's explore what that toxic stress does to you in terms of your body. And when you know what that is, uh, look around and, and see if you're being activated. So if you have high toxic stress and you have a fight with your parent or your husband or your wife, mm-hmm. um, what do you do? What kind of feelings does it build on you? And then what are your actions? So he looks second at B, what are the behaviors they engender? So you have mm-hmm. a fight with your girlfriend, you go out and get drunk, you wake up the next morning with a stranger. That's mm-hmm. a behavior and a consequence. That's the right. BC part. Uh-huh. If you understand activation, you know what your behaviors are, you understand the consequences, the D and E parts are what he added. Dispute it. Fight it. Mm. Understand that if you don't do it, you don't suffer the consequences. The E part is that if you've successfully done that, energize, tell yourself you did a good job, reward yourself. It resonated me in large part because I became a pitching coach and I was introduced to a brilliant coach by the name of Tom House. Hmm. Dr. House was the pitching coach for a pretty decent pitcher by the name of Nolan Ryan. Hey, I've heard the name before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nolan pitched his last no-hitter no when he was like 42 or 44 years old. Crazy stuff. Six or 7,000 strikeouts in his career. But what Dr. House told us is that everyone would observe after an adverse pitch, meaning he gave up a run or a home run, it was a bad pitch. Mm-hmm. He did three things. or he, he was What they observed was he was talking to himself on the mound. 
understand that when you throw a bad pitch, you have maybe 30 seconds to prepare another pitch, mm-hmm. so you have to be back up at the peak of your game. Mm-hmm. So what Nolan told Dr. House is that he does three things. <clears throat> he takes three deep breaths. Mm-hmm. He smiles. <clears throat> and he talks to himself. He says positive things. So now when I talk to people, I tell them, you're experiencing an adverse effect, smile. Mm-hmm. That releases serotonin. The research demonstrates that. Um when you take the three deep breaths, the, what the fear response does is that you're not going to benefit from having oxygen go to your brain. It's taking any excess oxygen you have and putting it in your muscles so you can run or you can fight. Uh-huh. Same thing with glucose. Your brain uses 22-23% of the glucose that your body takes in. If it shifts it to the muscles, that might be the difference between you surviving in the wild <laughs> when you're predat- predated or uh, or dying Uh split second response and the ability to run a little bit farther than your predator is important in the wild it has no function here that's why i said when you accumulate these toxic stresses problems lots of problems we've got to hear the rest of the story but the clock is telling us we've got to step away just briefly we're talking about simple things that you can do i love this in the midst of those toxic stressors those challenges that you face regardless of what your background is there is hope for you we've got a final segment coming up on today's edition of american indian living patrick anderson my fascinating guest is not going to go away i hope okay we will be right back after this today's broadcast has been pre-recorded However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. One day, I'll teach chemistry to kids. I'm going to be an architect. My dream is to be a chef. At the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Federal Student Aid, we provide more than $150 billion each year in grants, loans, and work-study funds, making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life. I can go back to college. I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand. And someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. 
Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back for our final segment of American Indian Living. Dr. David DeRose with Patrick Anderson. I've really been enjoying our dialogue and extremely practical. We just left off speaking about what you can do in a difficult circumstance. We're trying to learn from one of baseball's great pitchers. If you're not a baseball fan and you didn't know the name of Nolan Ryan, I think even people who aren't baseball fans have probably heard of him. But I did not know this insight that you're sharing, Patrick, that he did these three things. Recap those again. He throws a bad pitch. Maybe a guy hits a home run off him. How can he get back on the top of his game? Well, the first thing that he told Dr. House he does is to take three deep breaths, get oxygen to the brain. The brain, in a fear response, uh, puts oxygen elsewhere. The second thing uh, that he did was smile. Uh, Smile releases serotonin. It's one of those positive brain chemicals. Of course, you don't want to smile on the mound, but you have a glove that you can kind of bury your head in <laughs> okay. uh, so you can hide it. The third third thing that uh, he did was positive affirmations. Uh, he'd been in that situation multiple times in his career, so he would talk to about all of the times that he had come back. Mm. Positive experiences. You can do this, Nolan. You, you've been here before. You know exactly uh, how how you have to come back from this. They're just positive affirmations, talking to yourself. Um, it resonated with me because by that time I had already learned about the concept called emotional freedom technique. Uh, Gary Craig, an engineer, had developed this concept, and he had worked with a bunch of veterans who had severe PTSD. Uh, and a lot of e- emotional freedom technique are the positive affirmations that you have. And the interesting thing about EFT is that they do not have to be very specific affirmations. They just mm-hmm. have to be very, they can be very general, and you don't have to know the problems. So in emotional freedom technique or tapping, you're tapping energy meridians around your head and you're telling yourself, even though these bad things happen to me, I still completely love and respect myself. Um, Blew me away. So I I believe in the power of positive affirmations. And then when uh, I read the work of Dr. Marty Seligman on positive psychology, uh, his ABCDE, the last one is energization. Mm -hmm. So that's positive affirmation. You need to be able to tell yourself you've done good things. And that's what I learned from, from Dr. House and his conversations with us about what Nolan Ryan did. I mean, this is such tremendous stuff. And whether people who are tuning in, you know, we, we talk, Maybe, you know, you mentioned meridians. Other people would say, oh, well, you know, this is starting to sound like acupuncture. I mean, we don't have to to go into the the different models of how we influence brain thought. But this is such a huge area now where we're talking about things like positive affirmations. There's a lot of people talking about journaling and uh, gratitude journals uh, in in this positive psychology movement. How do you see this playing out in someone who has had something quote, bad happen. It may not be, uh, you might say, yeah, Nolan Ryan, I mean, the guy throws a a home run pitch. I mean, his team can come back and and win the game. But me, when I messed up at work, uh, I maybe even lost my job. Uh, How is giving myself positive affirmations going to help me? It's not going to give me a job, is it? What do you say to someone who tries to minimize these techniques? You have one adverse impact in your life, it occupies a very short period of time. You need to think more long-term. 
these adverse childhood experiences accrue over a period of time that could encompass your entire childhood. That's right. You're not going to get rid of it overnight. So when you have an adverse experience, um, I move on to levels two, three, and four of my hypothesis. Level two is that most of our nutrition is really poor. Mm. And I don't advocate that you go out and eat good food. If you're in poverty or if you're living from paycheck to paycheck, you're not going to buy organic food. You're not going to get the omega-3s that you need. I don't care if you're living in Arizona. The research shows that for D3, probably a third of the population is deficient. Mm -hmm. I ask people who are in distress to look at their nutrition and supplement if they can afford to. First thing I say is if you can get 2,000 milligrams of omega-3s for a month, your attitudes are going to change. Mm -hmm. Your violent behaviors will go down. Dr. Joseph Hibbeln, who was with the NIH uh, psychiatrist, research psychiatrist, for example, connected deficits of omega-3s in the blood of, of uh, retired military to increase levels of suicide. Mm. Suicide is a huge adverse experience outcome. Mm -hmm. So with Dr. Hibble, he discovered that uh, of his 800 uh, research subjects, every standard deviation you were underneath the average level of omega-3s, there was a 14% increase in suicide. Wow. You get down to three standard deviations, which puts you at something like 99.8 or 9% of the population. That's a 42% increase. Substantial risk. Uh, Bill W. was the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. Uh, when he spoke to Dr. Abram Hoffer in the early 1960s, Dr. Hoffer told him, take three grams of niacinamide, uh, spread it out over into three doses during the day. And what Bill W. reported three times in pamphlets he wrote for uh, people involved in AA is that it was the first relief he had from the unrelenting depression that drove him to using alcohol. This is very interesting stuff, and I know we can't tie all this together, but I've been interested in niacinamide or nicotinamide also uh, uh, as a synonym for it for years, and it seems to also have an immune modulating effect. So we're, we're talking about some simple things, I mean, available over the counter, whether it's vitamin D, omega-3 supplements, whether it's eating you know, some of my friends say eat more fish. Other people say oh, don't eat much of the fish in a lot of places because it's all, you know, contaminated. You know, eat the walnuts and, and the flaxseed. However you're doing it, we're, we're talking about things that for some people are attainable, you know, if they have some disposable income, right? Right. So what else is on this list, this construct of addressing these ACEs and, and moving forward? You mentioned the second prong, which is diet. The first one, recap that one for us, too. Uh, the first one is just knowledge. Uh, mm -hmm. Know what happened to you as a child, that it can lead to toxic stress, and that you don't have to be ruled by that toxic stress for the rest of your life. It may take you a year or two to get away from it, but it's possible. So the second one, then, is diet? Is, is that nutrition. Right? I don't nutrition. even look at diet because okay. I've... Uh, the people that I work with can't afford much. I'm hoping that we can actually find funding to provide the supplements, and there are only about five or six that I I want people to get into real quickly. So uh, quickly, because I want to make sure we cover all this before yes. our time runs out. So it's uh, did I pick up on vitamin D and omega three? Yes. And the niacinamide. Niacinamide. And uh, what else is on your list? Uh, magnesium uh, and. Uh, zinc for uh -huh. it, it addresses pain and a whole lot of other functions. Mm -hmm. There are over 300 functions mediated by by uh, magnesium. Magnesium alone, yeah, right. Oh, great, great. So, what's where do we go from there? Number three. Number three is your body knows how to recover from an escalation, a fear escalation. It's called tremoring. Hmm. So you mentioned um, 
uh, acupuncture. I had a colleague who was undergoing acupuncture during a very stressful time. The acupuncturist hit a particular uh, nerve and the colleague tremored for 30 minutes or for an hour. Wow. Tremoring is your body's dissipation of the fear chemicals that have prepared you to fight or to run. They're real mm. chemicals. Mm -hmm. So when you tremor, you're dissipating those. It's like you're running. It's like you're fighting. Mm. So Dr. Peter Levine and his discussions about somatic experiencing shows a video of a polar bear that is darted, drugged, uh, handled while it's still conscious, but when you see it come out of the effects of the drug, it starts tremoring at its paws and it continues through his whole body, dissipating those chemicals that, he, that the polar bear otherwise would have dissipated during the run. Mm. So <clears throat> there are a series of exercises called trauma release exercise. Um, Dr. David Berselli uh, originated those based on his Ph.D. research, but trauma release exercise, series of seven or eight exercises in a 15-minute period, will adequately stress you so that if you lay on your back, feet on the ground, if you have toxic stress, your body will start tremoring and you begin to dissipate both current chemicals and those that Dr. Levine say accumulate in your body. Now, this clock is being relentless, Patrick. We have got about a minute left to cover okay. some of these other high points. So what else is in this uh, in this approach? The fourth level is training your brain. This is where emotional freedom technique, Ericksonian hypnosis, EMDR, mindfulness, meditation. You're basically going through the positive psychology steps for your brain to tell you that you can recognize the uh, outcomes of toxic stress and you can deal with them mentally. I appreciate you talk about this range because some of my listeners will say, well, they, they hear hypnosis. They say, we don't want to go down that path. And I actually kind of tend to lean in that direction myself. But some of these other techniques, powerful in shaping the outlook. And is that pretty much where we go? Is it four steps or we got to? No, the fifth step yet? is that some people will need professional help. Mm -hmm. uh, some people will have uh, uh, behavioral issues that require the uh, input of psychologists, PhD levels, uh, psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. uh, some are organic, and you just really can't overcome them without professional help. Wow. This is just great stuff. So we've got the whole construct now, the whole hypothesis. And those are the five steps, yes. I really hope you get funding to do this, to look at this work, because we need it in Indian country. We need it everywhere, don't we? Absolutely. Uh, it's uh, uh, Toxic stress doesn't discriminate. Patrick, there might be some people who are so engaged by this discussion, they want to learn more. Is there some place you would point them? I don't run across people who are thinking this way. Um, I would encourage them to read Ace's Connection, where there is a, a, a very big discussion of adverse childhood experiences. That's probably uh, the best source right now for discussion. Very good. Patrick, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule here at the National Congress of American Indians. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We have to step away. Hopefully today's show has made a difference in your life. For all of us, as always, I'm wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.